Broadcasting live from ATDC in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Take 5. Now here's your host, Jane McCracken. Welcome to ATDC Radio. I'm Jane McCracken. I'm the Assistant Director at the ATDC. We're the state of Georgia's technology business incubator. And I'm so glad you've joined us for this month's installment of our podcast, Take 5. The inspiration for this podcast comes from the Dave Brubeck jazz classic, Take 5. And I'm asking two of Atlanta's leading entrepreneurs to share with us five inspirations that have impacted them in their entrepreneurial journey. Joining me today is Mario Montag. Mario is the former co-founder and CEO of Predicto. And also joining us today is Andrew McConnell, the founder and CEO of Rented. So before we get started, I thought I'd just set the scene a little bit and read a few lyrics from Take 5. This is our inspiration for the podcast. So wouldn't it be better not to be so polite if you could offer us some light? Start a little conversation now. Just take five. So let's get started. And Andrew, why don't you kick off and talk to us a little bit about what Rented does, first of all. Tell us about it. Well, the, the answer to that question has changed over time, as I think a lot of early stage companies can attest to. But today, Rented.com is a technology and technology-enabled service provider for professional short-term vacation rental and Airbnb managers all over the world. So uh, predominantly in revenue management, data science, data analytics, but also M&A advisory, marketing, finance um, capabilities. And Mario, tell us a little bit about what Predicto did. Yeah, Predicto got started in 2013, and uh, the goal was to take data and use machine learning models to predict failures in large industrial assets like planes and trains. And we realized that uh, using machine learning for that space was incredibly tedious and manual, and we would never be able to scale and uh, all of the advisors were constantly drilling in our heads, you know, how are you going to scale this? So we um, pivoted a little bit and said, hey, let's try to make data scientists obsolete and try to automate the process of creating these custom manual machine learning models. And it was a crazy idea. We were able to attract some crazy smart people and we got about 85% there. So we, we were able to significantly scale what one data scientist can do with machine learning to go after uh, failures in large industrial fleets. And uh, we were acquired about 18 months ago by a uh, fortune 50. Well, congratulations. I think all entrepreneurs want to experience an exit. So that is really, really exciting, but let's talk about both of your journeys. Um, Andrew, one thing I do know about you, you love swimming. So talk to me about how swimming has impacted and affected the way you are as an entrepreneur. In numerous different ways. I mean, one, I think, is really the the work ethic of knowing you miss a week. It doesn't take a week to get that back. It could take an entire year to make up for that, that week you missed. And so you, no matter how you're feeling that day, uh, no matter what you want to do, you're getting in the pool and you're putting in the hours, you're putting in the laps. And there's also a, a line that can be drawn on when it, is no longer good to do that. You know, I've, I've ended up in the hospital before because I had the flu and 104 fever and I kept doing doubles. And so you have to 
to kind of read yourself and read the company or, or read your body and understand when you're just being lazy and when you really do need to take your foot off the pedal. And so I, I don't think I've perfected that balance, but I think swimming has taught me the importance of it and to constantly search for it. And you do this in running your company too, just pacing yourself and pacing it and pacing just is not just for me. You know, I think this is an interesting thing of David Foster Wallace and infinite just had this line. You would care less what other people thought about you if you realized how little they actually do. And that was something I lived. That was amazing advice to have as a 15 year old. And for most of my life, that's what I live by. And I was talking to Donna, uh, the, the founder of Palm, former CEO of Palm. And for some reason I, I gave that line. She said, you're the CEO. That's not true anymore. Everybody's watching what you're doing. Everybody's listening to what you're saying and reacting to it. And so you, you don't have that freedom anymore. And that, that was hugely eye opening uh, for me of, it's not just about pacing for my own sustainability. If I don't set an example of, yes, it's okay to take vacation. If I don't set an example of, Hey, I'm not responding to your email at 2am, then I set a standard and expectation that people can't live up to. And and that's not a healthy way to run a business. Well, Mario, you've, you know, kind of talked around process and that there is a process to all the madness. Reflect on some of that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a complicated question when my, my background, I, I was a consultant. So I, I, uh, graduated from industrial engineering and, and, you know, was implementing IT solutions uh, as a consultant, and I and I thought, well, how difficult could it be to to start a software product centric startup? Um, I'm really good at sales. I have a lot of experience managing and hiring, and and my God, was I humbled? And it was it was just a completely different mindset of of, of creating a product that has to be repeatable and scalable versus going to a client and doing something custom for them and you're getting paid by the hour to do it. So through that journey, I, I realized that I, I needed a better way of running the team, running the company. And I was looking at many different methodologies and processes and there's a gazillion books out there with advice. And frankly, they're all great. You just have to stick to one thing and be consistent <laughs> So um, I was looking for one that didn't have too much complexity on it that I could sell to the team and um, would would not just be too process heavy and 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 could you know help us control the madness and and, and stay focused and stay aligned and, and row in the same direction and, and you know that was that was key and for me it was that book traction and uh, the entrepreneur operating system it might have been David Cummings who who might have blogged about it once and. You know, well, okay, let's let's take a look at it, and it just clicked for me, and I I prepared a whole eight hour offsite you know workshop for for my leadership team who came in kicking and screaming, what a waste of time, what are we doing here? And they left feeling like, wow, this is this is really good. So so I implemented a lot of tools. I've I've shared some of those throughout my journey with other startup CEOs and and, and people and. And it helped to 
um, just have a cadence in, in meeting every week for 90 minutes. The meetings are run the same way. It's called a level 10 meeting, uh, defining that, that clear North star. What do we look like in 10 years? And if you want to look like that in 10 years, very specific too, like how many people and, um, you know, revenue and churn and like just everything. And you're, you're guessing. And if that's where you want to be in 10 years, well, where do you have to be in three in order to be on track? And if that's what you were going to look like in three, where are you going to be in one? And that just breaks it down to on a quarterly basis, you know, OKRs. And so we, we implemented a lot of things from that methodology. Um, and it, it helped to stabilize the, the internal process of, of running the company. And what were some of the benefits from it besides stability and besides process? Did you get that measurable result fairly quickly or did it take a while? I would say that the first quarter was a little rough because part of that process, we we created a a scorecard, an internal scorecard. And every single lead had about five to seven items that they defined – with me on how they were going to run their area, engineering separate from sales, separate from marketing and, and so-and-so. And we realized we were not necessarily defining the best metrics or things that we can measure on a, on a weekly or bi-weekly basis if it was by sprint or, or whatnot. So the first quarter I would say was a little rough, but then people started to ask for, hey, we're, we're – you know, when is our next meeting, right? Or if we had to, you know, a trip that prevented us from meeting on a regular basis, um, the team would just come prepared and they, they, they had a cadence to it. And every quarter we would meet to define the next quarter's goals. And do we have to tweak what we had, you know, aimed for in a year? And, uh, and it all started with actually that in that eight hour meeting, that first meeting, we changed our company values. We changed our mission and vision that were first defined by me in my home office when I started Predicto because it, you know, it seemed right. Well, now a year and a half, two years later, we were a new team. So we had to go through that kind of who are we um, process. So, so the result was a lot more focus, a lot less chasing the shiny new object because we have a new opportunity that is a massive opportunity and this would be the right thing to build to land that deal. We were doing a lot less of that. And it was it was great for us to be able to execute together more aligned and faster. I think values and not only what your own values are, but then the values that you reflect to your company are so important. Andrew, I know you think a lot about values and vision and how you share that and build your team. Talk about a, some of those that have inspired you. Specific values? Yeah, or just processes or philosophies. Yeah, I mean, the the irony of running a 21st century technology company is that probably the most influential philosophy for me is stoicism. Uh, so something out of ancient Romans thousands of years ago and – Ryan Holiday and Tim Ferriss and others have introduced me to it. But this, you know, before we started the show, we were talking about other people aren't the problem. And there's so much, especially as an entrepreneur, we think that you you leave and you go start your own company and you're your own boss and you can dictate everything. But the market, your customers, your employees, everybody else is dictating stuff all the time. 
and understanding what is actually in your control versus what is not. And the only thing that is consistently in your control is your own mindset. And what color do you put on what happened? Other things just happen. People say or do what people say or do. There's neither good nor bad. Only our mind makes it so, as Hamlet said. And so it's, it is our interpretation, our coloring that we put on an event or an action that then helps dictate how especially your team reacts. They see how you react and can set the stage for you reacting positive positively to it as well. And so that, uh, you know, stoicism being kind of the, the baseline, we, we are very explicit on what our values are and what our mission is in every single board meeting. We make sure the board knows it. It opens with here again. This is the mission. This is where we're going. This is the reason we exist as a business. Here are the values that we say we care about better for all. We are only doing things that are better for all involved. The communities we're in, the customers we're serving, uh, it, that grew out of initially we were in a marketplace. And so we were saying, look, we're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. These transactions can and will only happen if they're better for both parties. And who those parties end up being grew over time. Another one for us is, is growth of, look, we're, we are an early stage company. It's back to the Bezos. Every day is day one. We're still day one. And we have to grow as a business. And the only way to do that is if we also grow as people. And so separate from your job at rented.com, every single person gets a thousand dollar a year budget to say, how do you want to go grow? this year as a person. So some people say, I want to go become a yoga instructor and they'll go do that. I want to take a masterclass on this totally unrelated topic. Or, I mean, we've, we've had it where we've invested in people to go get graduate degrees and things. And then they went and got another better job. And we make sure to celebrate that as a company. Cause we say, look, we are here to all grow as individuals. And if it's, it's imperative on you to grow fast enough to help us grow as a company. And it's imperative on us to grow and grow the opportunities to keep up with you. And, and it's a two-sided equation on that. Now that's, that's very interesting. I, I very much love hearing about how people instill value across the company and with their team. And I know Mario teams are very important to you uh, and just getting the right people in the room, getting everybody on the same page. I mean, do you want to reflect a little on that? Yeah, I mean, God, it's it's not about the technology; it's about the people, right? And um, one, I mean, the, the the number of scars that I have and, and, and the learnings in, in the last seven years, uh, it's like if I would have gotten five PhDs. That I really believe that. I mean, the the amount that you learn by by starting something from an idea. Um, and, and getting people to believe in your idea and getting those people to join you in that journey. It is not about the pay. It is about the why am I going to attach myself to this thing, this boat, this idea, this co-founder, this founder. So for me, it's really, really critical to understand the past of, of anybody who's, who's thinking about joining. And understanding the why are they joining, and that there there needs to be a clear sense of, of purpose, um, and it needs to be like 
deep psychologically connecting, right? Not just because I think your product is cool and you're going to pay me a salary. That That's not going to cut it, especially, you know, early hires and really especially on the co-founding team. So for us, our number one value was people first. We take care of each other. We take care of ourselves and the cu- the customer will come second. And and the example we would use is if for whatever reason we had our biggest customer, our biggest deal, the biggest go live, and there was only one person whose thumbprint could press the green button to go live, and something personal happened to that person in the morning for whatever reason, and they can't be there. Like we call the customer and say we're not going live, right? Because our people and taking care of ourselves was number one, and that was that was key. Now, in turn, those people gave their life to the, the company, the startup, and what we were working on because we were aligned. There was a mission. There was a purpose. So um, hiring, especially your first five or ten, is so, so critical because they're defining the culture. The, the founder or the two co-founders cannot dictate culture. It just happens, right? And it's – if you, I think it was Brad Feller or maybe Andreessen Horst. Somebody I recently said, if you're not sure what your culture is, have each of your, you know, leadership team members write down their top qualities or how their personalities are defined, and then just read that because that's your culture, right? So yeah, people, it's it's all about the people. Well, Andrew, you mentioned things about growing as a person, and I know you've been accepted in this year's Leadership Atlanta class. Has that really started to make an impact on you? It it has. I, I think being a tech entrepreneur, we had looked outside Atlanta a lot. You know, a lot of our investors are West Coast investors or New York investors, and though we were part of the ATDC community we didn't have, or I didn't personally have quite the same network, same uh, connections with a lot of people in Atlanta, especially those outside of the tech community. So I I had a a great network within a very narrow group and with something like leadership Atlanta, you know, it's the 50th year they've, they've done it and it's pulling people in from so many different backgrounds and really seeing the rich fabric of the community of Atlanta. We have Bernice King, who's Dr. Martin Luther King's, uh, daughter. We have Andrew Cathy uh, from True Cathy's grandson from Chick-fil-A. We have the president of Spellman and the head of cardiology at Morehouse and the head of Camp Twin Lakes. And so they're business founders, they're corporate people from Delta and Coca-Cola and all those. And it's 80 of us. And, and we get together in very intimate settings uh, and, and tackle really complex, very, very difficult issues um, that a lot of it is it's sad that it's surprising that to just see some of the things that aren't changing, you know, to, to be in the average of the top 5% of income in Atlanta to be the average in the top 5%, not 1% takes $667,000 a year. We are number one in the country for economic disparity. Atlanta is. Oh, wow. If you think of Atlanta public schools, you know, my I live in the Grady cluster, so my daughter would go to Grady. Grady's roughly 50-50, African-American, white. 
And so that was my perception of Atlanta public schools. There are 10 or 11 high schools in Atlanta public schools. Three of those have more than zero white children in them. Only three. So seven or eight are a hundred percent segregated as segregated as pre Brown v. board. And that's the city we live in and being in a tech bubble that we're saying it's this meritocracy. It's all this high growth. I, I just didn't have visibility into a lot of that. And are you starting to bring some of what you're learning back into the way you're running rented or the way you're looking at rented or the customers or, or a hundred percent. So it, we, we were very, and, and have been mission driven on, we believe and support local communities and what those local, we had done it through the guise of local businesses and property managers. And we had talked about, well, when we hit X or when we do Y, we can have a bigger impact. And I think over the past six months, we said, it's not about if we're going to do this. It's not about when we're going to do this. We're going to do this now. It's about how do we start doing this now? And yes, we might not have Microsoft's budget to go give away, but we have a certain skill set and we have certain technologies that we can start for free giving out to those in need in different ways. And so we're, we're really trying to investigate a, a more Tom shoes model for, Hey, if we have this technology for everybody who's paying in the U S can we take people in El Salvador, Nicaragua, or Uganda, some of these others, and make it available for free to them to support their local businesses, to help them build local businesses so that they can do hiring and stimulate that local economy? So it's certainly changed what and where and when we try to work on in terms of the problems that we address at rentit.com. So it sounds like you're getting a lot of different things from the program then maybe why you originally went into the program, which was more of a networking type uh, opportunity. It's very difficult to know why I did it initially. I think it was uh, a, one of the nonprofit boards I'm on, Sheltering Arms, which is Georgia's oldest charity. It's 131 years old, and it's an early childhood education center. Uh, they, we run 15 around Metro Atlanta. It's a national best practice center, global best practice. People come from China all over the world to come see how they do this multi-generational approach to early childhood education. So it's not just about the children. It's about how do we support that family network? How do we do job training for them? How do we do placement? How do we do upskilling so that they can earn a living wage and and help this child and this family be successful long-term? And the CEO, Blythe, of Sheltering Arms had done Leadership Atlanta and had said really great things about it. And Laura Hodgson uh, from Now Account, she had done Leadership Atlanta. And she's like, look, that's how I met Stacey Abrams. I went and founded three companies, or maybe now they're on their fourth company together because of that. And so these were two women I respected tremendously who said really good things about this. And I said, okay, I, I don't know why I'm doing it, but if they think it's a really good thing, I'm going to go do it. And you're definitely benefiting from it. It's wonderful to see, and it's a wonderful way to network. And thank you for bringing up about Stacy and Laura because they met each other there, and now they're co-founding companies all the time. And Mario, networking networking is important to you too. You've you've done a lot of it, and you're building a company through it. Talk a little bit about your experiences. Yeah, I was a frustrated, not so happy consultant, uh, you know, what I, what I call a walking zombie, right? You're just doing your job, waking up, 
you know, responding to emails, get, getting the job done, but I wasn't fulfilled. And I actually walked through these doors, right? These ATDC doors saying, Hey, I think I, I want to start a technology startup. You know, I want to learn. And, uh, and I started to meet people and, um, crazy people who had crazy ideas like I had. Right. And, uh, and, and very quickly, the amount of help and support that I received was, was amazing. And I started to get more engaged and more engaged and, um, you know, participated, I joined ATDC, which, uh, was hard. <laughs> they almost didn't let Predicto in, which I thought was funny. Uh, did Flashpoint Georgia Tech. Uh, we were, yeah, I was part of the first cohort there with, with Merrick first and, um, and, and slowly started to realize, God, there's all of these people trying to do technology startups and, um, at a national and global level, the amount of sharing and, and support. And, and I joined, um, 10X CEO, which is a similar to EO based out of the Valley, which is a CEO peer kind of networking group. Um, that also helped. And, and then we, you know, I joined the ATDC CEO group here and just the amount of help and support that's available makes it possible. You cannot do this alone. Um, and I'm fascinated to hear what, what you were just talking about and, and what Atlanta is going through and the networking, the connections that, that you're making. Um, I'm on the board of the Atlanta Community Food Bank, and we do 65 million meals a year. And I had a perception of, oh, people who, who, who use the food bank don't necessarily need it. They're, they're abusing the system. My God, I was humbled and the amount of need – is, 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 is humongous. It's humongous. And the most at need are, 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 are families with children. And the most at risk, at risk periods are during the summer when children don't have access to food through their local schools. Um, and the amount of networking that I'm also experiencing within the food bank is, is, is fascinating. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a great humbling experience as well. I think it's fascinating that most people think entrepreneurs or being an entrepreneur is all consuming, yet each of you during your entrepreneurial journey is finding time to give back. And I think that probably helps give you perspective, keeps things in balance. And it's very, very admirable. I mean, how about some other people in your life who have, Andrew, some, some people that have really made you who you are. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously my, my wife and my daughter are going to top that list. Um, my, I met my wife when I was still in school, I was doing a graduate degree in the UK. She's British. And within months I, she was meeting my family and my sister's first comment is, wow, you're a lot less selfish now. Like you're, you're thinking about other people or at least this one other person. Uh, and then with the birth of my daughter, that, went to an entirely different level of, yeah, I, I just today, I was worried I was going to get here in time because I had to rush over to her school because she, she was having a rough day and, and get her out. And so, um, it's, you learn all sorts of lessons, how to, to put others first, which look better people than me knew that well before they had to get married or get, or have children. Uh, it took some dramatic changes in my life for me to realize that. And then that, no matter how much you think you have things in control, you don't, uh, and they can blow up in any moment. A, a child's fantastic for that. Having a toddler that 
can go from zero to the world is ending at a snap of the fingers is very humbling. Just like you're saying, starting a company, uh, starting a family and starting a company together. It, there's nothing like that to, to bring you back down to the level of, wow, we're, we're all just humans wayfinding right now. And, you know, I, I had a lot more respect and I, I won't even say forgiveness for my parents. I think just understanding of the bar I had was unrealistic. And I think I do that and, and I'm getting better within my company and, and trying to be better with my family of not holding people to unrealistic bars. We're all human. We're all flawed. We're, we're trying to make the best of it that we can. And as long as we assume positive intent, then don't seek to judge, don't seek to forgive, but seek to understand what's driving the behavior. And I think that's helped me be a better husband, better father, but also better at work of, Hey, that's not at all something I would have said or done in that meeting. Why, why did you approach? Why did you make that offer to that client? Why, why did you do this? And instead of coming against it, it's trying to come alongside and try to just understand where that person is coming from has, has really helped me, I think, uh, as a leader of a company with employees that I'm managing. So do you think things have changed since you've become a father? I do. I, this, uh, Paul Graham had this article. He's like, look, this, this is an uncomfortable truth, but I think once you have children, the reality is you become less ambitious. Uh, and you, you talked about we were starting companies and that can be all consuming, but we have these other things. And I think what family, what children, what seeing the community getting involved in the community does is I don't know if it makes you less ambitious, but if there are a hundred points to allocate, you realize there are other things that should get some of those points. And the company is one very important thing. And it's not saying everything gets 20 points and there are five things and they all get 20 points. The, the company may still get 65. It may get more than anything else, but your life is fuller once you have a family, once you have children, once you have things that you care about beyond yourself. And Mari, I'm sure you've had similar experiences. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you, Andrew, and it's interesting. My my takes is probably a little bit different. So I had a moment my at home and my wife is very risk averse. If you if you read Carol Dweck and she she splits people into growth or fixed mindset, strongly recommend that book. Um, I am growth hardcore <laughs> and and my wife is is fixed, pretty fixed. So um you know we we were talking and I said, "Hey, you know, we we both have successful careers." Um, we just had our first boy, our first child. We're not creating wealth this way, right? It's, it's going to be a W2 income, social security. I don't think this is going to make it for us, right? I was worried about that. And I said, I think we need to go the entrepreneurship, right? And I started this two year journey of trying to convince her that one day I was going to quit my job and go to making zero for a year or two, right? So that was a process. And having our son at home changed things for me. It, it provided another layer of motivation that said it's not just about me and, and my wife. 
there's now this other human that's 100% dependent on us. So it really kind of, you know, increased the level of, 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 of commitment, right? And it takes staying up till two in the morning, six days a week to, to get something off the ground. And in my case, having a child provided me extra fuel. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's uh there's a stoic quote of to, to get rich, do not add to your store of goods, but subtract from your wants. And I think my wife and I have this mindset and we have this conversation all the time about an opportunity comes up for something and say, okay, is there anything, can we identify a single item that money could buy us that would make us happier? And there's not ever been once that the answer was yes. There's never been once. And so my wife, she's a partner at a law firm and talking about how much of a client she gives away. I said, look, if you made an extra X number of dollars, I can tell you tomorrow our life will be zero different. We're not going to spend it. We're not going to touch that money. But if you had an extra five hours a month that you could sleep or we could have dinner together, how much would that be? Could we even put a price on that? And so it, yeah, I, I get the, there's more that you're working for. Um, it, yeah, it, it's just a, it's an interesting it's a different that, position. Yeah, yeah, I was listening to it. I was like, hmm, okay, I have a different perspective. I agree with what you're saying, yeah. but, you know, just the mindset we went through was a, a, a nine to five job with a paycheck is not going to give us the freedom because we're, we're looking for that freedom. Um, but yeah, interesting. No, it is interesting. So both of you have gone through a lot as entrepreneurs inside your own company, iterating MVPs, pivoting. Talk a little bit about that. Mario, you, you, your MVP changed mm-hmm. quite a few times. Yeah. So we, you know, we decided we were going to use data and math to change the way planes and and trains and big industrial assets were going to be operated. And that sounds kind of simple, but it is incredibly complex. And for us, we, we want it to be a product, a pure tool that our customers would use to solve their problem on their own. Our investors wanted us to be a SaaS company, and a SaaS company solves the problem with software and services embedded all in. And that was an issue. That was a clash, right? Our customers didn't know how to buy SaaS. We were dealing with Fortune 100s. Um, They are comfortable buying SaaS on areas that are not critical to their business, maybe an HR application or something like that. So, you know, we constantly try to pivot and tweak and modify and change. Um, and it was, it was very challenging to create a standard software product where every single customer was different. The data that they had was different. Um, the, 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 how they were doing maintenance, their pro- everything was different. And, um, and, and we significantly struggled until we, we kept chipping away at making the data scientist obsolete and we would hire amazing data scientists and we would tell them, we want you to create 
your entire career, make it obsolete, right? And they were inspired by that. Some would run, right? And they never made it to the second interview. <laughs> but but the ones who were inspired by it would would, would like that challenge, that North Star. Um, so we we struggled a ton. Everybody struggles a ton. And who you think your your customer is and, and what they're looking from you and what they're saying is, 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 is usually not reality, right? So it takes a lot of psychology, a lot of trial and error, a lot of why are they pressing the button, you know? What is the incentive for them to press that button? And if the button wasn't there, would they cry? Right. And if, if they would cry and scream, then you, you are onto something. If they, if, if, if that button goes away and they just move on, then you don't really have a product market fit. Right. And that's so, so difficult. So yeah, it's, um, you have to be ready to, um, to say you're wrong, to admit you're wrong, to pivot, to change. But at the same time, there's a very careful balance between constantly changing without having enough um, enough at bats to make sure that that assumption that you had was wrong. No, that's it's inspiring to hear how you did iterate and change and listen to the customer. I mean, Andrew, how about you? Because your your business has morphed and moved quite a few times. Many, many times. And we as I think I emailed you today, we, we incorporated a new entity uh, last week. So we're constantly evolving and changing in response. It, it's not just the customers. It's also the market, you know, the economic environment, what people outside of our industry do and has implications for what people in our industry have to do as well. And what are hotels going to do? How does that impact Airbnb and short-term and vacation rentals? The I want to build on something Mario was saying, which is the incentives of the investors aren't always aligned, right? In that they they are totally fine with a 10% hit rate. And as long as they kind of force you to that cliff, one of those 10 is going to take off and be an Uber or an Airbnb in this multi-billion dollar company. The truth is the other nine may have been very good profitable businesses. There may have been a way to say, hey, we can pay dividends. We can make a good amount of money. Customers are happy with this way of delivering service. It's just not a $10 billion company. And I think I was blind to that whole possibility of there are good businesses that aren't called Uber or Airbnb or Facebook or Google and you brought up EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, joining that and seeing, because my, my only connections had really been within ATDC. We're all tech companies. We're all fundraising. There is one path, and it's binary. You go public or get acquired or you blow up. And then going and seeing all these other businesses saying, wow, these people own their company. They make money. They seem really happy. They're delivering for customers. They're delivering for their employees. That seems like a really nice way to do it as well. There's more than one way to be successful depending how you want to define success. And when you start taking outside investors, which look, we've raised a lot of money, uh, we have, you you don't always have aligned incentives. You don't always have the same objectives. And it's a dangerous position to be in and you might end up in a place that you're just not happy with. But to build on that, I am starting to see a lot of traction in other avenues for your traditional tech startup 
you know, CEOs, uh, company. Um, I was reading a blog. I don't know if you've heard of Tiny Capital. They look for those startups who are not interesting to VCs, and they're more than happy to write a check, have some shares, and get the dividends because they're cash flow positive. And it's a you can call it a lifestyle business, which VCs you know have in their terms things that allow them to cash out when the, you know that happens. And these guys are more than happy to write you a check and partner with you, and they make the decision in thirty days. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of venture studios popping up. There's, I heard there's a hundred of them in, in, in North America or globally. And they're saying, Hey, we are a factory, a, a, a company that makes other companies. Right. And let's partner. And you're the CEO that comes with the idea. And we already have marketing, sales, development, UI, UX, all of these components. And, you know, in, in a matter of weeks, you can have a product up and running. And, if you need your first round of funding, we're, we're it as well, right? So just a different way of creating new technologies to attack a market. Uh, and it's it's not the binary options that we've seen for years. Both of you have, have grown a company. Just as we wrap up, if you don't mind, if you could pick one thing that you've learned along the way that you would do differently – because you have the benefit of hindsight, I'm kind of curious what those would be. Andrew, how about, can you think of anything? Yeah. I, potentially, ironically, mine would be lower the bar sooner. Uh, not just on the MVP, but the getting stuff out the door and getting feedback is the only way to move forward. And I think my my parents always said, Growing up, I was this perfectionist. I've never felt like it, but I think my company at many times has been held back by me not having a lower bar. And so I think actually having an individual instances, a slightly lower bar would allow us to have raised the ceiling for where we could go at different, different points in time. Interesting. How about you, Mario? Yeah, just, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I had a, somebody mentioned to me once that if you're not, incredibly embarrassed by your first MVP you built too much, right? So that's speed and, and lowering the bar. So in addition to, to what you said, I would also say, which piggybacks on, on, on our last segment, that you don't have to go after the big VC money with the valuations and, and run that type of marathon. Um, there are many different ways of creating successful companies where you love what you're doing, your customers love your product, you have an amazing team and you can, you know, throw the baseball with your kid, you know, after school. Right. It, it, if we're out of time, cut me off, but no, we are. I have Keep a, going. a mentee who I was talking to her and what her objectives were. And she was saying, look, I want to get, kind of 10 years, grow it to this level, and then I'm going to sell and get out. I said, okay, well, why why do you want to sell? She said, well, this is unsustainable. I can't I can't possibly keep this pace up for more than 10 years. I said, okay, well, do you like what you do? I said, oh, my God, I love it. I've never done anything that I love as much as this. I said, okay, what will you do once you sell? You're going to have a non-compete. You're not going to be able to do this thing that you love. And she said, but I, I can't keep it up. I just can't do it. I said, why don't you just change what you're doing today? 
why, why don't you make it sustainable today so that you can continue to do the thing that you love? And it was only in having that conversation with her that I had that personal realization <laughs> too, right? Like people had been giving me the same advice, but I had looked at the exit as this single path and, and realized why wait for the life that we want? Why not build it today? That's fantastic advice. I mean, Mario, you've experienced an exit, but you and I have already been talking about the fact that you're going to go on to your next thing. Yeah. And one thing that I guess I'm learning, uh, late, uh, is, is, is people need a tribe. You need to attach yourself to a thing where you have a common goal and there's a there's a purpose and a why everybody is there. And when I compare to how we were two years ago, running out of cash, stressed out, you know, we might die, right? Because you're you're days away from glory or, or death, right? And and I compare where a lot of those people are today and some people left, some people left right before the exit, you know, where we've lost that, that tribe that we had before, right? We're now, you know, you predict there's part of a, a fortune 50, which, you know, brings other challenges, right? Some people, um, are seeing a massive ladder that they want to climb and they're making decisions and behaving a certain way to go climb that ladder, right? So the unity of that tribe no longer exists. And the purpose for many of them is now like, oh my God, I, I took the super high paying job and I hate my life, you know, this this person I was talking to. And I said, well, because you lost that that tribe. So it's really important for any entrepreneur uh, who's looking to join a startup or, or for somebody to, you know, looking to start something to, to, to always look at the people side of things and say, what tribe do I want? What's the purpose and what are we trying to accomplish? Because if that is great and it has value and it has purpose and it's aligned, then you can break through walls and you're going to have a blast doing it, right? And money is not going to, never brings happiness. And it's not it's not a factor. It's not a factor. So yeah, I, I think, you know, I just wanted to add that. There's real science behind that. That's the thing. It's yeah. It's sure. True. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. I mean, there are so many lessons learned that you guys have shared and it's just been great. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks yeah. for having us. Had a blast.